It's really difficult to find great executives. Spear Consulting helps organizations find all-star executives and hire the right one using work psychology so you can serve more customers and grow your business. To get a free quote, go to spiritmco.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Virtuous Heroes podcast. Uh, I think uh, everyone is going to love this guest today. Dr. Burke, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, he's a doctor, a dean of a medical school, medical school, <laughs> dean of a medical school, husband, father, and an author. So impressive. Um, Dr. Burke, would you please kick us off by telling us a little bit about how you got to the leadership position that you're in today? Sure. Well, um, after medical school, uh, I knew that I wanted to be in academic medicine, to have the opportunity to teach students and residents, do research, and see patients myself. And so that was a commitment that I made. I graduated from Boston U Medical School, had a great experience there. I spent some time on an Indian reservation as a senior medical student. I went through Boston City Hospital as, to learn internal medicine and infectious disease. And then when it came to becoming a faculty member, instead of staying at Boston U or Harvard, I made a leap of faith to go to a brand new medical school in Johnson City, Tennessee, which was right outside of Appalachia. They desperately needed faculty, particularly infectious disease. There was no infectious disease physicians there. And so I spent 20 years at East Tennessee uh, helping to develop that medical school. And I was very young, but had lots of opportunities for administration. I became the chief of medicine when I was 32 and the chairman of medicine when I was 36. And that gave me just great opportunities in administration in having the ability to change the lives of medical students and residents and to do research, research in infectious disease and geriatrics. And uh, basically stayed in Tennessee for 20 years, then uh, became regional dean in Amarillo, Texas, at Texas Tech School of Medicine. And now for the last 15 years, I've been the dean at the Texas Tech School of Medicine in Lubbock. And so I'm one of the longest serving deans in the country and have enjoyed every year of working together with students, residents, developing faculty, and building a medical school here in West Texas. Well, he must have taken a lot of courage to go from an established employer like Boston City Hospital to East Tennessee State University. How did you make that leap of faith that you proclaimed? I mean, that was just what uh, I felt my calling would be. If I had stayed in, as a faculty member at Boston City with Boston U or Harvard, there were about 10 different faculty members who were almost exactly the same as me with respect to their career. Whereas uh, in, uh, in Tennessee, the need was great and it was an adventure. And I had thought about even going back to the Indian reservation. Uh, they really didn't need anybody in infectious disease at that time. So this, is, this was just what uh, felt right to me. And I knew I was very, very well trained from Boston City. So it didn't bother me that I would you know, have less resources or be my, by myself 
uh, in infectious disease. But it was a leap of faith. I was born in New York City. I did all my training in Boston. I probably had never been south of Atlantic City, New Jersey. So jumping into Tennessee, rural Tennessee, was uh, was a leap of faith. But it turned out to be a great thing for to build build myself, build my character, give me lots of opportunities to take care of patients, to teach uh, medical students who were from that area and wanted to build the, the healthcare system around Appalachia. And so it really wasn't a, diff- it really wasn't a difficult uh, uh, decision. I think it's interesting that uh, oftentimes if you just dive into, you know, making the choice to be able to really uh, be a servant and to serve others, um, that, that you just get blessed throughout your career. And obviously, as I look at all the plaques in the back of your office, <laughs> you've been one that has been wildly blessed throughout your career as well. So um, thank you for, um, you know, just in reading about, more, you know, hearing you and then also reading more about your career and some of the um, works that you've done. I'm just seeming like, you know, always impressed with your way to, with the way that you've always kind of looked out for others. So, so thank you for having a career and a lifestyle of that, really. Um, you know, before we dive into some of the uh, virtues that I want to talk about today, we usually like to start kind of focused on the vices side so that people can really get a sense of, you know, that, that, even though you've done these amazing things that you yourself are still looking to continue to grow and develop in that way. Um, and uh, before I, before I kind of ask you to kind of like, you know, just communicate about what are some of the things that you're working on yourself. I'll just admit that, you know, I've in the last month, I've been really trying to focus on um, radical um, candor and feedback. And I think, as an outside consultant, sometimes it's really easy just to bite our tongue and be like, you know what, I really don't want to give feedback right now. I'd rather just uh, prefer to just move on with my life and, and not have to do that. But, you know, it's really in those opportunities to really dig in and love other people and share feedback that when we allow other people to be able to grow. And so something that I'm, I'm presently working on. But yeah, just kind of curious if there's any vices that you had to overcome to reach your present leadership capability, or if there's any that you're still working on in order to, you know, become just, you know, the, the ultimate leader that you're hoping to be. Well, one thing, I don't know if it'd be called a vice, but a tremendous ethical challenge is that in medical school, we teach students and residents and faculty to take time with their patients, to get to know that, to get to know their patients. Uh, We teach them that, uh, we want to take care of patients, rich or poor. It doesn't make any difference to us. Um, but then we're faced with a healthcare system, which really does uh, favor productivity, wanting uh, doctors to see patients really quickly, wanting to make sure pay, uh, physicians see commercial patients where they get paid much better. So we, we have that ethical dilemma of, on the one hand, teaching the students all of the great ethics that have gone on in the profession of medical in medicine for hundreds of years, but then facing a very difficult healthcare system that favors uh, those who do have commercial insurance, who do have wealth, 
and also trying to make physicians productive by seeing lots of patients in one day when actually they may need more time with individual patients. So I'm kind of in the middle of trying to make things work with the healthcare system, but also uh, preserving the traditional values of a physician. So that's a challenge for deans and uh, for, for academic medicine and for physicians in general. And we're also, I'm an infectious disease physician. We're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, trying to, on the one hand, uh, keep everybody safe, dealing with issues of mandatory vaccines, mandatory masks versus individual freedoms. Uh, that's a tremendous challenge. Um, one of your vices, pride. Well, deans have to be careful about that because we're usually told by the people that work for us what a great job we're doing all the time, but <clears throat> we know that that may not necessarily be true. And so we have to be very careful to make sure we don't over, uh, overestimate ourselves. Those, those are some of those important issues that I have to face. Yeah, so I want to get into the anatomy of a kidnapping because I, I bring that up because obviously it's an impressive uh, work, but the, it, you know throughout that book you've you've stated multiple different um, patients that you've been working with where maybe if you just would have done the fifteen minutes and moved on with your life that they would have either passed away or you know you wouldn't have been able to care for them and love them in the way that you you have throughout your career. Um, so, yeah, I want to talk more about that. But then also, before we move into that, you know, just wanted to think through, you know, like, that is probably something pride is something that, you know, a lot of leaders can struggle with. What has been some of the most healthy ways that you've uh, found yourself to to be able to stay grounded, stay present with people, and not just, you know, not just be able to kind of be focused on like the high priority issues, but be able to maintain and, and recognize the importance and dignity of every life that's in front of you. As far as making sure you're doing your work correctly, there are always friends and colleagues that will give it to you straight as far as what they think is right and wrong. And I try to make it clear, like to the chairs of my departments, if I'm going in the wrong direction, it's your job to tell me that and so I can reevaluate. And I think also family, my wife of uh, 40 years and have uh, two sons who are in healthcare and they have no trouble, you know, telling me if they think I'm doing something wrong or being unfair to somebody or, you know, or if I have not evaluated an important issue in the right way, I can certainly be sure I get that from certain colleagues and from family. So I think that's, as with other people, that is one way of staying anchored by uh, having your close friends and family members being able to tell you whatever's on their mind. Have you been feeling unfulfilled? You want to be happy, but just continue to struggle. One of the best ways to experience joy is by caring for the homeless. 
A charity I've grown to love, River Light, food rescues a million meals per year for the needy in Chicago. Imagine how that make you feel, knowing that you're helping feed children and veterans. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit riverlightchicago.org. Again, riverlightchicago.org. No one should go to bed hungry. The, uh, the image that comes to mind in that is, I remember when Chris and Carter were in diapers, it's like, no matter how cool you are, you know, sometimes you get peed on. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, just, uh, the, you know, obviously, uh, you know, just thinking about the analogy to, you know, people have a way of being able to, you know, our loved ones have a way of being able to knock us down a couple of times. So I think that's sound advice. So yeah, in addition to the textbooks that you've written, you've also written a book that I just finished entitled The Anatomy of a Kidnapping. So for our audience that haven't been able to read it yet, in 2005, uh, Dr. Burke was uh, kidnapped by a felon at gunpoint and had his life and family's safety threatened. Um, Dr. Burke's just a wild story overall. Curious how you were able to establish rapport with your kidnapper and live through that very difficult situation unscathed, rel relatively unscathed, compared mm -hmm. to some of the other people that had, you know, interacted uh, with your kidnapper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when a middle-aged man is uh, kidnapped at gunpoint, it is a very dangerous situation that results in about 50% uh, homicide. I had a great advantage being a physician. Um, he kidnapped me because I had left my garage door open. He was uh, getting out of Texas after violating parole, and uh, he came into to rob me and get cash, but I had no money in my wallet or very little. So I became one of those crime victims where he put me in his SUV. He was in the back seat, uh, shotgun at my head to take me to an ATM machine to get $500 for him. I didn't know my PIN number. And so that was the uh, beginning of uh, that issue. How I survived it was uh, the basic principles that we learn when we're a physician are a tremendous benefit in those circumstances. One is the principle of aquinimitas, which is William Osler, who's kind of the father of American medicine, teaches, and that is that a physician always has to stay calm and clear-headed and uh, make uh, decisions even under the most stressful of conditions. And so for 20, 30 years, I was teaching medical students that basic principle. I became kind of known by the medical students as someone who would teach them to stay calm in the ICU if lots of things were going wrong. Um, <clears throat> different people were getting, different patients were getting sick at the same time, whatever the stress, we would stay calm, clear-headed, and do our best work. And so that was a principle that I used as a gun, as a gun was to my head. And uh, of course, that was the supreme test of this philosophy that I had given to others. And I was able to do that. In fact, I memorized his vehicle registration number, which became critical later on. But the other important point is that we learn to relate to all patients, 
no matter how difficult, rich or poor. I had uh, many patients who were drug addicted, and he, this individual was methamphetamine addicted, not acutely toxic, but methamphetamine addicted. And so I was e easily able to converse with him, to go back and forth with him as he was trying to figure out what to do with me once he did kidnap me. So he would even at one point was telling me, well, you're a doctor and my back pain is getting worse and worse. And I told him, well, you know, you're under a very, you're under a lot of stress right now. Stress exacerbates back pain in a very stressful situation, being a kidnapper and all, and tried to relate to his situation. And he actually told me his life story. And so when he had to decide what was going to happen to me, I don't think he was, he was not of the mind to uh, kill me, even though that might have been uh, an option he considered. You know, the, uh, I was in a one-on-one -on -one with an indirect report recently, and I brought up this story uh, with Parker. And uh, I was specifically talking about how that scene where, just to kind of set the stage, you know, it was on a Sunday that you were kidnapped, your wife was at church, your other son was in college, and then your youngest son was downstairs in the basement, I think you said, playing guitar on the way to go, uh, go to church. But ultimately, like, there was, a, there was a moment in time where the kidnapper was, had you in the laundry room and you basically, you know, were saying goodbye to your son, but potentially saying goodbye to your son for the last time of what you knew in that moment. And, and that had radically, like, impacted Parker because he is really, one of his core um, motivations is intimacy. And he's one of those people that leads with his heart and has an ability to, to, you know, connect emotionally with people. Some people call those empaths, et cetera. But he, but one of the things that we had talked about that he, you know, where I'm setting kind of like the, the radical candor for the next month to be able to grow in that gift, he's focused on like not allowing, like not, yes, it's candor in the way of like being able to share feedback, but then also on the loving side of like not missing the opportunity to say what's on your heart to the people that are around you, to, to your loved ones, et cetera. And just curious, Dr. Burke, if that had also impacted you throughout your life too, of like not, not missing a moment when, when there's an opportunity and a loved one in front of you to be able to say what you, you need to say to them. Well, that of course is one of the, that, that was the poignant moment, of course, because not only um, did I realize I was in a very dangerous situation and could wind up uh, a homicide, but there was no opportunity to uh, say anything to my son other than, you know, have a great day in church. Because if by any chance he thought that there was something wrong, if the way I said uh, have a great day in church sounded at all suspicious to him and he came into that laundry room first of all he wouldn't have had the maturity he was you know still just uh playing video games and all the rest and there'd be three of us and he was actually the he would have been the the larger of the three 
and very likely would have made a mistake that could have been tragic. So again, with the principle of equanimitas, <clears throat> I had to say goodbye in a normal way while I had a rifle to my, to my head. And uh, probably not much different than you see in the movies at times when, when there's a similar type situation. But the best, the best part of that day was when he went out the front door and he was no longer part of that uh, kidnapping scenario. And I was I was telling you, Dr. Burke, in the in the prep for this uh, episode that, you know, I actually had a situation um, arise uh, three Mondays ago where our dog got hit by uh, uh, an SUV. My my wife was feeding homeless uh, by by the shopping center by our house, and they because it's a busy intersection, usually homeless gather there in order to, um, you know, beg. And so my wife was getting out to give them socks and food, and she was so excited to be able to do that ministry that she forgot that our pug, one-year-old pug, was in the back seat. And so I think she left the door open and the pug escapes. And, and going south on that intersection, I mean, it's 55-mile-per-hour intersection, so definitely. But luckily, the car that hit, her, hit our pug was turning was turning onto the street, so probably not going 55 miles per hour. I don't know if we'd have the same outcome. But in essence, then our, our pug got hit. Um, Hannah then ran after our pug, got her back into the car. But the both t- uh, front nail and a back nail were cut, and so then she's bleeding all over the car. So then my wife calls me at work and is like, I'm like, she's also like, you know, very driven by intimacy and emotion. So she was like, really like not in a place to be driving. So I just canceled all my meetings and went and picked them up. And she, so Hannah was just like freaking out. Meanwhile, my dog is like in my lap and bleeding all over the place and also in shock. So like just shaking massively. And so I'm thinking in my own mind, like, okay, this, the dog has got internal bleeding that we can't see. That's why like there's blood all over the place. And like, she's not going to live through this, but it was interesting because like your book, cause I just finished your book and so like that acquinimitas was just like, like principle was just in my head of just like, stay calm, stay calm, you know, keep uh, peace of mind. And that was, that was a really big blessing for me. So I, I appreciate that. I know when we had talked previously, you said, you know, sometimes it is one of those situations where you just have to go through various circumstances to be able to practice that, uh, that virtue curious if there's any other ways that you talk about that you you know as you said like this is something that you teach on is there other things that you talk about of of how to be able to gain experience to be able to stay calm in in chaotic situations well one thing i'll say that may apply to you all is that it's amazing how much strength and how much equanimitas you can have when you have no other choice but to have strength and equanimitas. And it is amazing what people can do when necessary and arise to the occasion. And that's not always the case. We all can be overwhelmed with stress and shock, but the human spirit does have a lot of ability 
to rise to the occasion. But yes, having the practice of being able, <clears throat> like if you're a medical student, you're going to have lots of practice on very stressful situations. So by the time you're a physician, you will have dealt, you know, with all of those, with all of those things and become better and better at keeping your equanimitas and keeping your clear headedness in, in all emergency situations. And one thing, I guess, as long as we're going down this line of thinking, another theme that I was picking up in the book is that you are, you have become at such a higher level of your capacity to deal with, with grief, both uh, in many different uh, lenses. So that could be internally and then also externally with grieving families. Um, it just seems like ultimately that as a physician, that's kind of, that just comes with the territory of the work that you have to do. But, and so, you know, you know, regularly like business professionals that are, you know, typically our audience here on the Virtuous Heroes podcast, they might, they may not have to deal with that much death, but I think with the pandemic, that is something that we've been, I, I, at least for me, I mean, I've been seeing, this has been the most crazy season of death that we've experienced with, you know, my wife's uh, grandmother passing away. My best friend's wife had just passed away. Um, uh, one of Hannah's friends, her, her uh, uh, brother had passed away from cancer. My mom just got diagnosed with cancer. Luckily, she, she through the, the procedures, got free from it. So it's just been like on my heart of that like, like all of this grief that a lot of people have been going through. Is there anything that you can share to help people kind of un better understand the way that you've been able to process grief to be able to help them in, in those times? Well, one thing we've learned from the pandemic is that for the first time, physicians have seen patients die without any family around because a lot of hospitals had that rule. So the one thing we learned was the incredible importance of having family and sharing grief. Um, you know, it's sad when somebody dies, but it's really, really sad when somebody dies and there's no family members around. Or to, to put it in a more positive way, it is amazing how... Uh, death is alleviated by having somebody right there holding your hand. And actually, physicians learn to play that role this year. Uh, normally, they're not there holding a patient's hand, nor is a nurse. That's usually a role of a family member. But uh, hospital workers did it and did it really well and uh, really emphasized how important uh, that is when you're, when you're dealing with grief. Now, many times, no one has the opportunity to be with a dying mother or father. Uh, it depends on the circumstances. But when that's possible, it makes a huge difference. And we, we know that in general, especially uh, with current pain meds and all, that uh, most people are able to die in peace and most people are able to die with somebody, family members around them. And so that, you know, people understand that 
that's part of life. They miss, you know, uh, people miss their mother and father such that their life is never really the same. But um, uh, that grief can really be ameliorated if you can be with that dying family member. Thank you. Yeah, that that's excellent. And uh, you know, I know you had you someone you, your own father. You you brought uh, to be living closer to you through the final stages of his life. And we we had talked about you know just being able to. Uh, I had the same opportunity with my grandmother Stella of passing with Alzheimer's too. So I think as you're saying, it's just you know there is a lot of peace. Yes, it's it's unfortunate, and you go through the 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 heartache of having to see your loved ones be able to pass but it's also is a beautiful blessing to be able to like see them and be with them in those final stages and so yeah as father or as as dr burke was just communicating like i you know we encourage you to lean into those opportunities and not run from them which you know some people can miss those opportunities to be with loved ones as they pass so, uh, Dr. Burke, you know, as the dean for Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, um, just just curious as to, you know, if there are you know budding physicians that are uh, considering uh, that medical journey, why should someone attend your organization? Right. So, yeah, we definitely uh, compete to have the best possible medical students here. And uh, what we use is the fact that we have a very high uh, student satisfaction rate. And we know that because there's a national survey, all medical schools uh, get the same survey of graduating medical students uh, at the end of four years. And they ask about their experience, they ask about the professionalism of faculty, they ask about uh, uh, their knowledge. There's actually a question that we do very well in that we're very proud of. It says, uh, my school has nurtured my development as a person, and my school has nurtured my development as a physician. And those are really the things that we want to have a high level of satisfaction among our students. I think for us, and for other medical schools as well, it's about collegiality. It's about uh, teaching the right uh, professional ethics to medical students to uh, make sure that uh, they're not mistreated in the healthcare system. After all, they're, they're in the hospitals, they meet a lot of different people, but we wanna make sure they get the level of respect. And so with respect to medical students, it's about a high level of satisfaction and also about excellence and all the metrics on the exams that they take. And for faculty, it's to also nurture their development and make them the best teachers, physicians, and sometimes researchers as possible. <laughs> and uh, to make sure that we all feel like we're doing our best for the patients of West Texas. A lot of West Texas is very rural, so there's lots of additional challenges uh, in caring for those patients. But uh, uh, important for us to attract the right people here is to 
have them see that we're meeting our mission of providing the best possible health care to people in this very large West Texas area. So, Dr. Burke, how can people get a hold of you or what your company is, is currently doing? Uh, so, we have uh, a really good uh, website, uh, Texas Tech University Health Science Center and Texas Tech School of Medicine have their own websites. Also, Texas Tech Physicians, that's our group of 300 physicians spread out all around West Texas who take care of patients. It's a kind of a separate organization. So yeah, no, no one would have any trouble finding Texas Tech Health Science Center, Texas Tech Health Science Center School of Medicine, or Texas Tech Physicians on the internet and, and on our websites. Well, we'll also include those links in the, the show notes as well. So, um, yeah, just wanted to thank you, Dr. Burke, for being with us today on the Virtuous Heroes podcast, where we inspire virtuous leadership. And, uh, yeah, really excited to be able to see how this episode is going to, to bless others and really appreciate you for the time that you carved out. And also just, just encourage readers to also pick up the book, The Anatomy of a kidnapping. It was really a great read. And uh, yeah, you can buy that on, on the major bookstores that you can get your books on, et cetera. So Dr. Burke, again, thank you so much for, for the time today. Well, thanks for inviting me. And it was a pleasure to uh, meet you and know you and good luck with your project. Hey, Chris here. Hope you enjoyed the episode where we discussed all things going bald. <laughs> Just joking. If you enjoyed the episode and the podcast, will you please subscribe on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Or you could also share it with a friend. That would be tubular. I hope you have an awesome day. <laughs>